Littleton? Yeah. Littleton, North Carolina at Camp Willow Run with six other churches from the Eastern North Carolina Presbytery. So there were like 160 kids in middle school and high school that spent the weekend together. So we've been up early and up really late, depending on which cabin you were in. And so if, if in fact, the kids sitting next to you do fall asleep, feel, the free, feel free to give them a nudge or point. You can just stand up and point them out, and I'll call them out. We'll make them stand up for a minute. But you'll have to excuse that. You'll have to excuse me if I fall asleep during my own sermon. We are very very tired. It escalated last night to the point that the prank wars, the prank wars, the, the middle school boys got into the middle school girls' cabin. I don't know how they got the key. It wasn't, it wasn't me. I didn't give them the key. I did. I gave them the key. And uh, they went in, and I wish I had a picture that I could show you, but literally every inch of that cabin was covered in toilet paper and hand towels. Like, the whole thing was completely destroyed. It was pretty epic. I think it'll go down in history as one of the, the great pranks from Camp Willow Run. Uh, the girls were varying degrees of upset. They did then get them back before the night was over. So I think we'll call it even and we all go back peacefully to Peace Church. Yes, that's the hope. Anyways, we are all so glad to be with you. Today we're going to look at the gospel in the life of Joseph. If you have your Bibles, whether hard copy or on your phone if you want to turn to Genesis chapters 40 and 40, 41. That's where we will be today. The sermon is entitled, Go to Joseph. And again, Genesis chapters 40 and 41. What we're going to do, that's way too much text uh, for me to do an entire scripture reading. So what I'm going to do instead is I'm going to summarize the life of Joseph up until the last five verses of chapter 41, and then that's where we'll pick up. We'll read those, pray, and then get started, okay? So, uh, the life of Joseph, the gospel in the life of Joseph. As you know, Joseph was the great-grandson of Abraham. He was the 11th of Jacob's 12 sons, and he was daddy's favorite. Jacob, or Israel, made the mistake of not just playing favorites, but giving his son a symbol of that favoritism for all in the family and the community to see. What was that symbol? Who can tell me? The coat of many colors. Yes. So he was given a symbol of his favoritism. His brothers, of course, resented him for being his dad's favorite. And then when he was 17 years old, he had a dream. He had a dream that his family would be bowing down to him. And then because of his naivete and probably because of his hubris, he ran and told his family about this dream that one day... They would, including all of his older brothers, they would be bowing down before him. And so they despised Joseph. They did not like him. And if, if you remember, he went to them away from dad. And when he showed up, they said, here comes that dreamer. And what did they do to him? They threw him in a pit. And at first they had determined that they might let him be eaten by wild animals or they were going to kill him. Something terrible was going to happen. Uh, then, uh, which brother, who remembers, which brother said, let's not do that, let's not kill him? His name was? Nope. So Reuben said, no, let's, let's not kill him. They throw him in this pit, then Reuben apparently goes off, because it's, he, he comes back and he's surprised that Joseph isn't in the pit. What had happened? If you remember, Judah, whoever, said, whoever just said Judah, uh, they look up and they see a caravan of... Was it, who was it? It was the Ishmaelites and the Midianites, is that right? Who remembers? I think that's right. <laughs> so they see this caravan 
uh, coming, and they say, hey, Judah says, instead of what we had planned, what doesn't benefit us, let's sell him and make some money. So they, this is a very troubled family, a very dysfunctional family. They literally trafficked their brother into slavery. And then this caravan took Joseph, and they sold him to the Egyptians. They sold him to Potiphar. Uh, and he went into Potiphar's house, and so now he is a slave in Egypt. And God grants him favor. In the midst of his oppression, in the midst of his slavery, God grants him favor, and he is put over as manager over all of Potiphar's house. Unfortunately, then, if you remember, Potiphar's wife takes a liking and has an eye for Joseph, and on multiple occasions, she tries to seduce him. But because Joseph was a righteous man, uh, he did not give in to her attempts to seduce him. And she got tired of him uh, rejecting her, and she ends up accusing him of attempting to rape her. And of course, Potiphar then, in response to that, throws Joseph into prison. So now we have this boy that at 17 years old is trafficked into slavery, and then he's a slave in Egypt, and worse, then he is put into an Egyptian prison. And then if you remember, uh, I don't know how much time passes, I don't think the text actually indicates, but then Pharaoh's chief cupbearer and chief baker, they offend Pharaoh in some way. And the chief cupbearer and the chief baker are thrown into prison. And God also granted Joseph favor in prison, and so he's put over the prison as manager. And in particular, he's called to attend to these two prisoners. And so they had been in prison for some time, and one morning, Joseph goes in, and the chief cupbearer and the chief baker are downcast. It says that their faces are troubled. And so Joseph says, what's wrong? And they say, we've had these dreams, and there's no one to interpret them. And Joseph says to them, well, do not the interpretation of dreams belong to the Lord? Tell me, tell me your dreams. And Joseph interprets both of their dreams. It says that they both had a dream with their different interpretations. And the chief cupbearer, he interprets his dream to mean that in three days, the chief cupbearer, his head would be lifted up in the sense that he would be restored to his position as the chief cupbearer um, with Pharaoh. But then he interprets, if you remember, the chief baker's dream to mean that in three days, his head would be lifted up in the sense that Pharaoh was going to hang him and kill him. And three days later, those dreams come true. And Joseph had asked the chief cupbearer, when this comes true and you are restored to your position, please do not forget me. I have been wrongfully enslaved and I am a foreigner that has been taken into your land and now I'm also in prison wrongly accused because I didn't th do the thing that I've been charged with doing. And does the chief cupbearer remember him? No, he forgets him. He forgets him. And it takes two whole years. Joseph is still in prison. And finally, something happens with Pharaoh that requires that they call on Joseph's services. So Pharaoh, if you remember, he has two dreams in one night. He falls asleep and he has a dream that there are seven, come out, up out of the Nile come seven beautiful and plump cows, followed by seven ugly and thin cows. And if you remember, these are cannibal cows. These thin cows eat the seven plump cows. He wakes up, he's disturbed, he falls back asleep, and he has another dream. And in this dream, there are seven ears of grain, seven healthy ears of grain that are eaten by seven unhealthy ears of grain. He wakes up, and it says that he called on all the wise men and magicians in Egypt. 
And you should know that there was a very well-developed system of dream interpretation in Egypt. And none of the wise men in all of Egypt, none of the magicians in all of Egypt could give Pharaoh a favorable interpretation. And then the cupbearer finally remembers Joseph. He says to Pharaoh, I've remembered my offenses this morning. There was a man in prison with me and the chief baker who had rightly interpreted our dreams and what he said came true. And so Pharaoh calls on Joseph. And Joseph comes and after they've, uh, he's shaved and they put him in Egyptian garb, he comes before Pharaoh and Pharaoh tells him his dreams. And Joseph says, do, n- do not these interpretations belong to the Lord? It's not in me, but it's in God. He will give you a favorable answer. And if you remember, Joseph interprets those dreams about the seven cows followed by the seven cannibal cows and the seven healthy ears being eaten by the seven unhealthy ears to mean that there are coming seven years of abundance, seven years of extravagance, abundance, and plenty when it comes to the crop yield in Egypt, that they were going to have tons and tons and tons of crops over the course of this seven-year period of time, but that that seven years would be followed by seven terrible years of famine. Do you remember that? And then Joseph says to Pharaoh, what you should do is you should appoint a wise man to oversee, to govern, to steward the seven years of plenty and store up one-fifth of the produce, 20%. We've got to save 20% over the course of these seven years. So when the seven years of famine come, when the seven years of famine hit, that we're ready, that there will be enough food. And who remembers what Pharaoh said to Joseph at that moment? Any of the kids? Anyone? Go. Perfect. Nailed it. That was it, right? That's the right answer. Okay, good job, Oksana. Yes, so uh, Pharaoh says to Joseph and, and his, his team of people, is there anybody in all of Egypt as wise as this man? And so he appoints him as second in command over all of Egypt to oversee the stewarding of the seven years of abundance so that there was d- distribution of food during the seven years of famine. So let's pick up there, if you want to turn to chapter 41. We're going to read verses 53 through 57. Chapter 41, verses 53 through 57. The seven years of plenty that occurred in the land of Egypt came to an end, and the seven years of famine began to come. As Joseph had said, there was famine in all the lands, but in all the land of Egypt there was bread. When all the land of Egypt was famished, the people cried to Pharaoh for bread. Pharaoh said to all the Egyptians, Go to Joseph. What he says to you do. So when the famine had spread over all the land, Joseph opened all the storehouses and sold to the Egyptians, for the famine was severe in the land of Egypt. Moreover, all the earth came to Egypt to Joseph to buy grain, because the famine was severe over all the earth. So I think that these two chapters are organized around a very simple imperative, and that simple imperative is Go to Joseph for answers and bread. Go to Joseph for answers and bread. And why? Because Joseph is the only one in all of Egypt with answers and bread. And so that's how we're going to structure today's sermon, by looking at the two things that God provides through Joseph, answers and bread. So first, go to Joseph for answers. Look at chapter 40, verse 8. 
So the cupbearer and the baker, they have these troubling dreams. And they say to Joseph, we have had dreams and there is no one to interpret them. And Joseph said to them, do not interpretations belong to the Lord? Please tell me your dreams. So notice Joseph doesn't tell them that he has the answers. Who does Joseph say has the answers? Yes, God has the answers. But before we get to the answers, the first thing that I want us to notice in this text is that Joseph still believes in the validity of dreams. What? Let that land on you for a minute. Shouldn't we be somewhat shocked that Joseph still believes in the validity of dreams? And is still so quick to turn to the Lord for answers? It's been over a decade since his brothers sold him into slavery. He's a slave. And now he's 28 years old and in prison as an innocent man, wrongfully convicted. Wouldn't you expect him to have given up on the hope of the fulfillment of the dream that he had as a 17-year-old boy? Wouldn't you expect him to be bitter towards God and potentially have given up and lost his faith? And yet here we see Joseph in prison as a slave, still trusting in the promises of the Lord. Brothers and sisters, Joseph knew something vitally vitally important and it's this suffering is not in conflict with the sovereignty and goodness of god your suffering and my suffering and joseph's suffering are not in conflict with the sovereignty and goodness of god what hardships are you enduring right now what suffering has tempted you to question the goodness and promises of god I know that many of you are suffering with a great many things, and it can be so, so difficult to be tempted not to lose faith. Have you lost a job or a spouse? Are you battling anxiety or depression? Have your children walked away from the Lord? Have you been diagnosed with a terminal or chronic illness? What is it? What are you struggling with? Here's what you need to know. You need to know that like Joseph, God is with you in the pit of your despair. God is with you in the pit of your suffering, and He always, always makes good on His promises. As many of you know, because I, I shared this story with you, last time I was here, I suffered with chronic illness for almost 14 years, and in 2017 and 2020, I almost lost my life to starvation. And right before COVID hit, if you remember, I was in UNC Hospital on my deathbed. And we had always had hope. Over the course of that 14 years, we always had hope that eventually some doctor somewhere in the world would figure out what was wrong and provide us with a solution. But in 2020, on my deathbed at UNC Hospital, it didn't look like that was going to come true anymore. It looked like I was hours from walking into glory and meeting our king in person. I was saying goodbye to my parents and telling my wife to remarry. It looked like things were over. And then God intervened at the 11th hour and restored my health. And as I jokingly told you last time, I feel like Lazarus with a baby, right? I am back in life and working a full-time job and all of those things. But you know what it was? In, in, in the midst of our darkest hour, when we were looking death in the white of the eyeballs, what was it that sustained us? as a family? What was it that sustained me in that moment? Well, obviously it was God's omnipotent arms that he says that he who began a good work in you will carry it to completion. 
It was impossible for me to give up my faith because God was not going to let me go. But what it was on our end, what it was that kept us in the midst of our darkest hour, was the knowledge that even if I had died, God would have been glorified and my good would have been achieved. Even if I had died, God would have been glorified and my good would have been achieved. God works all things together for the good of those who love him, even our suffering and even our death. No matter what happens to you, it all works together, ultimately speaking, for your good. So I think what we learned and what we see here in Joseph is a universal principle for the redeemed that to endure the pit, you have to trust in the promises and providence of God. To endure the pit, you have to trust in the promises and providence of God. Brothers and sisters, God doesn't promise us that we won't suffer or die. Consider some of the evidence for the New Testament. God raises Lazarus from the dead. But John the Baptist is beheaded, and Stephen is stoned, neither to be raised from the dead. Jesus heals Peter's mother's illness, but he does not remove Paul's thorn in the flesh. So while God doesn't promise that we won't suffer, he does promise us that there is coming a day when this whole world will be made new and us with it. That there is coming a day when we will be given bodies without expiration dates. Bodies that are not subject to disease or death, sadness or pain. In the new heavens and new earth, there won't be any hospitals, jails, graveyards or orphanages because there will be no need of them. Joseph knew this. This was the promise. Joseph believed in the coming Messiah. Joseph believed in the resurrection from the dead. And this was the thing that sustained him in the midst of his despair, in the midst of his struggles, in the midst of his suffering. How do we know that? Because he told his family, when you leave this land and you go to the promised land, you take my bones with you. You take my bones to the promised land. Because he knew there was coming a day when the promised Messiah would come, would defeat sin and death and evil and all, its, all of it. And he would rise up from the dead with the rest of the righteous to inherit an immortal body. As we sang this morning, we don't have to be afraid. No guilt in life, no fear in death. Because our Savior has overcome both. And His resurrection from the dead is a preview of what will happen to you if you put your faith in Christ. One day you too will walk away from your grave in a body that cannot die. So Joseph still believes in the validity of dreams. And he is the one that interprets the dreams of the cupbearer and the baker. And his interpretation comes true. As we said, three days later on Pharaoh's birthday, the cupbearer is restored to his position and the baker is hanged. Unfortunately, two whole years go by and Joseph is still in prison because the cupbearer did not remember him. But then, as providence would have it, Pharaoh has two troubling dreams that no one can interpret. And finally, the cupbearer remembers Joseph. He tells Pharaoh about Joseph and Pharaoh calls for Joseph. So look again at verse 15 and 16 of chapter 41. Verses 15 and 16 of chapter 41. And Pharaoh said to Joseph, I have had a dream, and there is no one who can interpret it. Joseph answers Pharaoh, It is not in me. God will give Pharaoh a favorable answer. 
So the second thing I want us to notice in today's text is that no one but God could interpret Pharaoh's dreams. All the magicians and wise men of Egypt could not give Pharaoh an answer. So I think what we are seeing here in the sacred pages of Scripture is that the proper interpretation of every fact belongs to our Lord. That the proper interpretation of every fact belongs to the Lord. Only the true and living God knows the future and the meaning of these dreams which He reveals to Joseph. Brothers and sisters, we live in a society where people are desperately looking for answers. In particular, to the existential questions of life. Who am I? Why am I here? What's wrong with the world? Is there a solution? Is there a hope beyond the horizon of death? What does the future hold? And ironically, at the same time, our society assumes that the answers to life's questions can be found in their own heart or can be learned from the wise men and magicians of our secular age. But Tony Robbins doesn't have the answers to the big questions of life. Oprah Winfrey does not have the answers to the big core questions of life. The latest influencer on Instagram doesn't have the answers. Elon Musk doesn't have the answers. Muhammad and Buddha do not have the answers. The Democratic and Republican parties do not have the answers. The only person who has the answers to the deepest questions of life is Jesus Christ in whom Paul says are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. The truth belongs to our God wherever you find it. He tells us who we are, why we are here, what is wrong with the world, what the solution is, and what the future holds because again, he is the only true and living God. So let me just ask you, where are you looking for answers this morning to those type of existential core human questions? I think we're all tempted to do it in terms of looking for a sense of worth and identity and security, in terms of looking for hope, all of those kind of core questions. If anxiety and difficult seasons of life are tempting you to look for answers outside of the sacred pages of Scripture to the deepest questions of life, I would just implore you to stop looking there. There are no answers there. Truth, truth checks the back of Jesus' book to see if it got the right answer. All the knowledge and wisdom of God are in Christ, which He's revealed to us in the sacred pages of Scripture. So those answers can be trusted and they can give you great comfort. How many of you have ever had a nightmare? How many of you have ever had a nightmare that came true? All right. I don't know how relevant it is, but I'm going to tell you about my first nightmare that I remember as a kid. As a six-year-old boy, my first nightmare was associated with my first grade teacher. My first grade teacher was this lady that chain-smoked outside of our class, and she was mean as a snake. We were petrified of her. It was also during the, the time in American history where you could still spank your students. And there was this one time where, let me just tell you, this is how ju just this woman was. There was a little boy in front of me that dropped his lunchbox, and his lunch spilled out over the floor, and I had the audacity to get out of my seat to help him pick up his lunch. The next thing I heard was, Jonathan, bend over. And I'm like, no, no, I'm just helping him pick up his lunch. No, no, no. And, you know, pleading with her. And it didn't matter. She wailed on me. That lady, uh, she was horrible, all right? She was not a good woman. 
right? But this was my, my nightmare was associated with her. So at the time, my sister and I shared a room. Uh, we had these red bunk beds, and I slept on the top bunk. And one night, I woke up in a cold sweat because I had dreamed that my first grade teacher had come into our apartment, walked into our room, and grabbed me by the ankles, pulled me out of the bed, and just walked out of the house with me. So I woke up, and of course, when you have a bad dream and you wake up, typically, you are relieved because you realize that that's not reality, that that's not actually taking place. Unfortunately, I still had to go back to class, but she had not kidnapped me, and so I was relieved that that hadn't happened. Unfortunately for Pharaoh, unlike my dream, when he woke up and finally got the proper interpretation, that nightmare was going to come true. There was, in fact, a day coming when there would be terrible famine. But God did not just give Joseph um, the interpretation. He also gave him the life-saving plan. So hold on, let me get my place here. So look at chapter 41, verses 25 through 27. Then Joseph said to Pharaoh, The dreams of Pharaoh are one. God has revealed to Pharaoh what he is about to do. The seven good cows are seven years. And the seven good ears are seven years. The dreams are one. The seven lean and ugly cows that came up after them are seven years. And the seven empty ears blighted by the east wind are also seven years of famine. You know, it might be hard for us in the modern West to relate to the panic associated with famine. But famine is not entirely foreign to us. I'm sure as some of you remember in the news cycle months ago, I actually got a text, a series of texts at like 7 in the morning a few months ago. And it was, I, I'm pretty sure it was on a Saturday morning. I was like, who's texting me at 7 in the morning? I'm trying to sleep. And I roll over and it was my mom. And there was a series of very urgent texts. And I pick it up and I read them. And I discover that she's informing me that there is a baby formula shortage. Do you remember this? Well, at the time, we had a five-month-old that was entirely dependent on baby formula. So I, in a panic, roll out of bed, throw on clothes, and I went from CVS to CVS, from Walgreens to Walgreens, from Walmart to Walmart, from Target to Target, trying to buy the formula, find and buy the formula that my baby depended on to stay alive. And so at the end of that period of time, I spent a couple hundred dollars on baby formula, and before you judge me, okay, I tried to calculate how much my baby needed to ensure that other people had some, okay? It was a little bit of a, an ethical and existential crisis and dilemma trying to determine how to do that. But I was responsible for keeping this five-month-old alive, right? That was my primary focus. So I went and got all this for me. But whether it's in the modern world or the ancient world, famine is a very real threat to life. At this point in human history, there are still over 800 million people around the world that don't have food. In America alone, the World Health Organization says that there are 38 million people who are food insecure in America. 12 million of those are children. What happens if you don't have food? You die. And so even in our modern West where we have access to grocery stores and fast food, it's not entirely foreign to us, this concept. If you don't have food and water, you're not going to make it. 
As I said, God did not only reveal the meaning of Pharaoh's dream to Joseph, he also gave Joseph the wisdom to come up with a life-saving plan in the midst of this ancient famine. So look at verses 34 through 40 of chapter 41. Chapter 41, verses 34 through 40. Let Pharaoh proceed to appoint overseers over the land and take one-fifth of the produce of the land of Egypt during the seven plentiful years. And let them gather all the food of these good years that are coming and store up grain under the authority of Pharaoh for food in the cities and let them keep it. That food shall be a reserve for the land against the seven years of famine that occur in the land of Egypt so that the land may not perish through famine. This proposal pleased Pharaoh and all his servants. And Pharaoh said to his servants, Can we find a man like this in whom is the Spirit of God? Then Pharaoh said to Joseph, Since God has shown you all this. There is none so discerning and wise as you are. You shall be over all my house, and all my people shall order themselves as you command. Only as regards the throne will I be greater than you. Can you imagine this? In one day you go from years of suffering in prison to being the prime minister of all of Egypt. This is certainly the second greatest meteoric rise in history. Second only to our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, who ascended from the realm of the dead to the right hand of the Father. And of course, this little story of Joseph's meteoric rise is actually supposed to conjure up thoughts of Christ in your mind, of his rise from the realm of the dead to the right hand of the Father, because the story of Joseph is this little prophetic picture and foreshadowing of the story of Christ. Jesus is the true and greater Joseph, whose meteoric rise would lead to the salvation of all the earth. So they went to Joseph for answers, and now they will go to Joseph for bread. Look at verses 53 through 57 in chapter 41. We're going to read this one more time. The seven years of plenty that occurred in the land of Egypt came to an end, and the seven years of famine began to come. As Joseph had said, there was famine in all the lands, but in all the land of Egypt there was bread. When all the land of Egypt was famished, the people cried to Pharaoh for bread. Pharaoh said to all the Egyptians, Go to Joseph. What he says to you, do. So when the famine had spread over all the land, Joseph opened all the storehouses and sold to the Egyptians, for the famine was severe in the land of Egypt. Moreover, all the earth came to Egypt to buy grain from Joseph, because the famine was severe over all the earth. So just pause for a minute, because at this, this point in the story, in particular with what we just read, the fulfillment of the promises that were made to Abraham should be leaping off of the page and filling your heart and flooding your mind. Because here we have a Jew, okay? This little ragtag band of people. We've got a Jew ruling over a foreign nation, bringing blessing to all the families of the earth. Let that land on you. We've got a Jew ruling over the world's superpower at the time, bringing blessing to all the families of the earth. This is certainly a partial fulfillment of what had been promised to Abraham in Genesis 12, if you remember that his family would be a blessing to all the families of the earth, and that rulers, that kings would come from his loins. And here again, we have this little picture of that. And note, there was famine in all the surrounding lands. So if you went to another nation during this famine, looking for bread, guess what they had for you? Bupkis. Nothing. 
At best, they've got a shovel for you. But an agricultural tool in the midst of a famine isn't going to help you at all. The only way for all the nations of the world to be saved from certain death was to go to Joseph. Here again, we have a beautiful prophetic picture that points forward to Jesus, the true and greater Joseph, who will rule over all the nations, bringing eternal salvation and blessing to all the families of the earth. You know, we live in a pluralistic society that defaults towards religious pluralism. The idea that all religions are equally true, that there are quote-unquote many ways up the proverbial mountain to God. But the nature of the problem determines the nature of the solution. The nature of the problem determines the nature of the solution. The reason that they had to go to Joseph is because he's the only one that had bread. In the midst of a famine, you need food. That is why, because the nature of the problem determines the nature of the solution, that is why Jesus is the only way to God. We need forgiveness. We need a perfect record of righteousness. We need eternal life. And despite what our culture wants us to believe, no other religion or religious figure offers that. Again, there aren't many proverbial ways up the mountain. Only Jesus has the bread of life. Muhammad does not have the bread of life. Buddha does not have the bread of life. Moses and all the prophets of the Old Testament, while they pointed forward and, and prophetically spoke of the one who was to come, they did not have the bread of life. Only Jesus has the bread of life. So if you go to any other religion or religious figure looking for life, do you know what they have for you? A spiritual shovel, which cannot be used to dig your way out of God's judgment. It can only be used to further dig your own grave. Our works cannot save us from death any more than a children's Tylenol can cure cancer or a venomous snake bite. Again, the nature of the problem determines, determines the nature of the solution. Sin must, must be atoned for. Righteousness must be achieved and imputed. And death must be defeated. Forgiveness, righteousness, and eternal life are only found in Jesus. Do you see, God rescued Daniel from death by lion. And he rescued Egypt and the surrounding nations from death by famine. But he uses Christ to rescue us from death itself. Jesus has the bread of life. And unlike Joseph's bread, guess what? This is such great news. I don't know if you saw this in the text. Joseph was selling bread. You had to buy it. And it only sustained your temporal life. Jesus' bread is free and it gives eternal life. So go to Jesus this morning. He's the only one that has the answers to your deepest philosophical, existential core questions about what it means to be human. And He is the only one that has the bread of life. Come to Jesus and live forever. There is more than enough bread for all who would come to Him. Would you pray with me?
Lord, as we talked about this weekend, eternal life is not just an unending duration. It is that. We will get to live forever. We will truly become, as J.I. Packer says, sinless creatures in deathless bodies. But it's, again, not just an unending duration. It's a totally transformed, radically new, and perfect quality of unending life as well. In your presence is the fullness of joy, and at your right hand are pleasures forevermore. As St. Augustine says, our hearts truly are restless until they find rest in you. They are unsatisfied until they find satisfaction in you. And so, Father, I pray that this morning we would come to you and eat of the bread of life, and that we would look forward to the day when you return and you make all things new. That's the thing that sustains us. That's the anchor in the midst of our storms, Lord. I just pray that you would comfort the people in this church. I pray that you would give us hope, that you would deepen our trust in you, that you would deepen our, our love and intimacy with you, our awareness of your great love for us, that Christ died on a cross with our names on it so that we could be put back in right relationship with you. We are so, so grateful. It's in his name that we pray. Amen.